Welcome to everyone joining the webinar. We got things turned on just a few minutes early so everyone can get in the room. We will get started at the top of the hour. Welcome to everyone joining the webinar. We have uh, a large group registered for today, so we might just wait one minute so people can click their links and join us uh, for the presentation today. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to today's webinar. My name is Rachel Daker. I'm the Executive Director of the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, and glad you're joining us for the presentation today. Uh, I'll start off with a little bit of housekeeping. Um, I have a handout from our presenter, and I will put that in the chat block uh, so you can download the um, presentation to follow along. The closed caption feature has been enabled, um, so you may need to turn it on for yourself, uh, but that's available for you to use. And then if you need, um, like a if you have a screen reader service and need the actual PowerPoint slides, the present, the, our presenter, Dr. Baxter said, that is available. Just uh, send us a chat note and we'll uh, get that over to you as well. Um, 
we will take questions at the end of the presentation. So please put those questions in the Q&A block or the chat block for us to uh, moderate. When I close the webinar today, there's a short survey. We appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future webinars. Then watch for a follow-up email that will come from Zoom. Um, that should be by Wednesday of this week uh, with a link to the handout, uh, the recording that we're making today, as well as the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance. Uh, so I will turn things over to our moderator. Dr. Matthew Landry is a postdoctoral research fellow and registered dietitian nutritionist at Stanford University's Prevention Research Center. He's also chair of the Public Health Nutrition Division, who is organizing the webinar today. Excellent. Thank you, Rachel. Um, I'm very excited to present um, and have a wonderful speaker on nutrition education for individuals with disabilities using cultural humility to promote inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. And as Rachel mentioned, um, this is a webinar produced by the and sponsored by the Public Health Nutrition Division. And it actually got started out of discussions that we had at our most recent um, quarterly division meeting where several of our members indicated a strong interest in this particular topic. So, and one additional kind of note, we hope many of you are able to join us for the SNEB annual conference in Washington, D.C. in just a couple of days. Two things to really point out of coming from our division is number one, our division session, Transforming the Charitable Food System for the future, which will be on Saturday. And we'll also have the PHN division meeting on Saturday, July 22nd. Um, and an additional thing to look out for at the conference is that we'll be having small little trinkets um, for folks. So make sure to look out for a public health nutrition division booth at the conference. Here are the SNEB nutrition educator competencies um, that are relevant to today's presentation. And for those that are academy members, here are the three, the four actually performance indicators that best match today's performance. And these will be available after the presentation as well. And lastly, the two CDR learning needs codes. And with that, I'll allow our presenter to start loading up um, their deck and introduce them. I'm very excited to present um, Suzanne or Susie um, Donald Baxter, um, who is an unpaid affiliate research professor at the University of South Carolina. She resigned from her research position um, late in 2016 due to an acquired disability. But earlier in her career, she worked with children with disabilities, with adults as an outpatient dietitian for school food service and for the WIC program. For most of her career, Susie worked in research, first at the Medical College of Georgia and then at the University of South Carolina. She served as principal investigator or co-principal investigator on numerous competitive research grants funded mainly by the National Institutes of Health. Her research focused primarily on the accuracy of dietary recalls provided by children and secondarily on the relationship between childhood obesity and daily participation in school provided meals. She received the Mosin Award for Outstanding Research Literature from the Academy in 2017. Susie's service focuses on research and idea for inclusion, diversity, equity, and access in the profession of nutrition and dietetics. She's a past president of her affiliate, the South Carolina 
where she also served as foundation liaison and is the current idea liaison. She is also a member for the Novajon MIG and diversity, um, Diversified Dietetics. With that, um, I'm very pleased to introduce today's um, presenter, Dr. Donald Baxter. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate that very much. Let me share my screen. I've had the pleasure of working with Matthew through the Cultures of Gender and Age member interest group. And it has been very much my pleasure to work with Matthew. And I thank you everyone who has joined our presentation today. There we go. Okay. Matthew introduced me. I'm showing myself on my accommodation, my little red scooter or my T-bird. And I am a bit ashamed to confess that I was aware of the importance of inclusion, diversity, equity, and access throughout my career, but it wasn't until I actually acquired a disability myself in 2010 and, have, and had to make the lifestyle adjustments to deal with it and went through that basically identity crisis um, of, you know, now, I'm, uh, now I've joined a new group um, being an individual with a disability. But I am confident that I'm in the right place, that this is where I'm meant to be. And so I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful it has opened my eyes to the importance of IDEA. And here's an overview of our presentation. I'll talk a little bit about the Americans with Disabilities Act or ADA. I'll provide you with some statistics for the prevention of disability. Then we'll talk about the difference between cultural competency and cultural humility. After that, I'll talk to you about some adapted tools and utensils for preparing and eating food for people with disabilities. Then we'll go into digital accessibility. And I'll just briefly mention a new group within the Academy, the Disabilities and Nutrition and Dietetics Member Interest Group. And then I have a number of resources to share with you. Does anyone know what this flag represents? This is the disability pride flag. And my talk this month is wonderful timing because July is disability pride month. Disability culture is one of the only cultures and protected populations that can be joined involuntarily, suddenly, and unexpectedly. Anyone can have an accident and suddenly no longer fit into the non-disabled world. And here we have many pictures of people with disabilities, someone typing on a compu computer keyboard with an artificial arm, someone doing yoga who is missing an upper arm, a man running track with an artificial leg, someone in a wheelchair playing basketball, a man in a wheelchair crossing the street, a woman sitting on steps with two artificial legs, a man in a wheelchair who has been out shopping, people doing sign language, a man who is blind with a seeing eye dog and a cane, a bride in a wheelchair, and then a person who is swimming who has only one leg. The Americans with Disabilities Act protects people with disabilities from discrimination. Disability rights are civil rights. The ADA is a law 
that protects people with disabilities in many areas of public life, ranging from voting to parking. And this photo shows a person of short stature in a wheelchair, a person with an artificial leg, and another person who has a cane. The ADA prohibits discrimination based on disability, just as other civil rights laws protect discrimination based on race, color, sex, national origin, age, and religion. The ADA guarantees that people with disabilities have the same opportunities as everyone else to enjoy employment, purchase goods and services, and participate in state and local programs. The ADA prohibits discrimination based on disability by employers who have 15 or more employees, all public and private schools, all state and local governments, all businesses that are open to the public, including hospitals and clinics, commercial facilities, public transportation providers, telecommunication companies, and the provision of federal services. All of these must abide by the ADA requirements. Now, a person with a disability is someone who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially Dr. limits. Baxter, this is Rachel. I'm sorry to interrupt, but they're saying that there is some kind of a black box on the screen. Um, do you see it? For me, it's in the lower right hand corner. Do you see that on your slide? Yes, I do. And I believe that is. Um, I'm going to have to end the control. Right. I think it's, I actually think it's my closed captions that are doing that. So let me turn oh. my own closed captions off. I've had that problem in the past and I'm so glad that you told me about it. Hmm, this is interesting. Oh yeah. Cause now okay. it's. Did it go away? Oh, that's better. Yes. Okay, do you do you see this black box in the middle now? That's my control oh, panel. Now now I do. You did you just click it cuz a minute ago uh, it wasn't there or a second okay, ago it I'm, wasn't there. Yeah, I'm moving it down to the very bottom and hopefully now it will not show. Let me see. Can you see that is that black box blocking anything on the screen now? It's down at the very bottom, but it's not blocking anything and yeah, at the moment. Okay. I've moved it down as far as I can. That's my control panel. Okay. Um, I can I can hide that. Uh, I can try to. Let's see. Uh, I don't see how to hide that actually. Hopefully it will not block things, but do please let me know. Um, okay. If, if yes, it is blocking thank you. things. Okay, thank you. So a person with a disability is someone who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. They have a history or a record of such an impairment, and they're perceived by others as having such an impairment. Now, what is meant by substantially limits and by major life activities? So substantially limits is defined by the ADA as it's interpreted broadly and it's not meant to be a demanding standard and not every condition will meet this standard. But substantially limits means 
well, I can give an example of what is not substantially limiting. That would be like a mild allergy to pollen. And what is meant by a major life activity? Well, those are activities that are done daily, including the body's own internal processes, such as actions, eating, sleeping, speaking, breathing, movements, which can be walking, standing, lifting, and bending, cognitive functions, sensory functions, which are seeing and hearing, tasks like working, reading, learning, communicating, and the operation of, bodily, of major bodily functions, circulation, reproduction, individual organs. Now, some examples of disabilities. It's important to note that the Americans with Disabilities Act does not list all of them because they vary so widely. And some are visible, whereas some are invisible. So here are some examples, cancer, diabetes, post-traumatic stress disorder, HIV, the autism spectrum, cerebral palsy, deafness or hearing loss, blindness or low vision, epilepsy, mobility disabilities, which require the use of a wheelchair, walker, or cane, intellectual disabilities, major depressive disorder, traumatic brain injury, and many others that are not listed. In the United States, one in four adults, or that's about 27%, actually it's more than one in four, have some type of disability. This is according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And here are types of disabilities in US adults. 12.1% have a mobility disability, almost 13% cognitive, 7.2% independent living, 6% hearing, almost 5% vision, and almost 4% self-care. And when we look at disability and health, it's very interesting to note that uh, adults with disabilities are more likely to have obesity than adults without disabilities. 42% with disabilities have obesity based compared to about 30% without disabilities. Smoking, 20, almost 22% with disabilities, 11% without disabilities. Heart disease is almost 10% among adults with disabilities compared to 3% without disabilities. And diabetes at almost 16% with disabilities compared to 8% without disabilities. People with disabilities certainly have a need for nutrition education. And when we talk about healthcare access, one in four adults with disabilities do not have a usual healthcare provider. And one in four have an unmet healthcare need because of cost in the past year. And 20% did not have a routine checkup in the past year. Disabilities do not discriminate according to race, ethnicity. And the graph across the top gives you the, the pictorial images according to race, ethnicity, and the approximate number of adults with a disability by ethnicity and race. And then the bullets I show 30% of American Indians, Alaska Natives have a disability, 25% of Blacks, 20% of Whites, 17% of Native Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders, 17% of Hispanics, and 10% of Asians.
when we look at the population of the United States on this um, chart on the left, it has a pyramid with the millions of people starting with the lowest, with the youngest age at the bottom and going up to ages 85 plus at the top. And you'll see that there are more people at the bottom and the fewest people at the tip. So that's why I'm calling it a pyramid. When we look, when you look at the visual on the right-hand side, that's more of a pillar because it's almost equal the number of people in every age group. And notice especially the difference at the very top for 85% or more. It's almost equal um, to the younger age groups. So this is why I'm calling it a pillar. So this is for the population in the US, but the pyramid and the pillar do not capture disability prevalence because disability prevalence increases with age. We all know that the US population is getting older on average. That means that we're gonna have more disabilities, <laughs> more people with disabilities. So are we as nutrition educators prepared for this increased prevalence of disabilities? Now I wanna shift and talk about cultural competency and then cultural humility. Cultural competency is the ability to understand and interact effectively with people from other cultures. It's necessary to have respectful and effective interactions and it helps to smooth the bumps out of our day-to-day -day activities. Cultural competency requires that we understand our own culture and how it affects our perspective that we have knowledge of different cultures and that we're willing to learn about differences in cultures and that we have the skills to communicate and interact across cultures. Now, cultural competency and cultural humility are different. Cultural competency is something that we gain. We develop awareness of our own culture and we gain knowledge about other cultures. In contrast, Cultural humility is what we practice. We understand the power balances. We form partnerships. We work to improve systems and programs. Now we don't, we're not expected to learn everything about every culture, but instead we are expected to make an effort and to use the appropriate skills to communicate respectfully and effectively with others across their cultures. Cultural humility is a lifelong commitment to self-evaluation. When organizations and individuals value both cultural competency and cultural humility, people understand each other. Individuals are allowed to reach their full potential. Multiple perspectives can be taken into consideration. We have enhanced morale. We have enhanced customer relations. We have fewer complaints and we have less dissatisfaction. And here are eight steps to successful interactions. First, you want to show empathy. Next, be patient, be flexible. It's very important to ask questions rather than assuming that you know something. Confirm understanding with the person. Use simple language. Don't dominate the conversation. And be careful about your use of humor because it can actually be 
it can actually have a negative effect on some people. Seven ways to improve your cultural competency and practice cultural humility. First, learn about other cultures. Second, make observations. Look and learn. Third, connect and build relationships. Four, listen to learn instead of listening to answer. You want to listen to learn. Show empathy. Challenge your own assumptions. And commit to ongoing development. You're always going to be learning. Now, I've used the word culture a lot, and I really want to focus on the culture of disability. Because people with disabilities are too often left out of discussions about cultural diversity. They seem to focus on race and ethnicity and gender. But there is a culture. Disability is a culture. And these omissions from cultural diversity discussions, they're not, they're not intentional. But it does persist, and it sends the wrong message that disability does not belong with diversity. Disability culture is when one builds by meeting other people with disabilities, especially with the same disabilities or similar ones, form relationships that help promote education, awareness, and acceptance. I've mentioned before invisible dis disabilities. These can certainly affect our interactions. Someone with hyperact with who is hyperactive or has attention in ADHD, the autism spectrum disorder, arthritis, chronic fatigue, epilepsy, hearing loss, learning disabilities, and mental illness. These are often the dis the invisible disabilities, which affect our interactions. There are many implications for disability culture, and I'm just going to summarize them here. Nutrition and behavior change educators need to recognize and include disability culture in cultural competency training and practice cultural humility with students and clients. I've mentioned that disabilities are diverse and they may affect for example, an individual's vision, movement, thinking, remembering, learning, communicating, hearing, mental health, food procurement, food preparation, eating and drinking, and or their social relationships. Two people with the same type of disability can be affected in very different ways. So the accommodations for them are going to vary considering considerably and depend on the type of disability and how it affects the individual. For example, someone with vision impairment may need an accommodation that is magnification, enlarging the screen or enlarging the page. They may read braille or they may not read braille. <laughs> they may use a screen reader for digital technology. They may use a cane. They may have a service dog. They may or may not wear dark glasses. So knowing that someone has vision impairment does not tell you what kind of accommodation that they're going to need. And someone with a hearing impairment, they may read lips or they may use sign language. They may use captions, or they may have a service dog or all of these. Someone with a mobility impairment 
may be able to stand and walk a few steps, even if they're in a wheelchair or a scooter. They may have full or limited use of their arms or the same with their hands. So the best way to find out what kind of accommodation they need is to ask them politely, could you help please, could you please help me understand how to accommodate your specific disability? Now I'm gonna move into the section talking about adapted kitchen tools and utensils. There are many tools and tips for individuals with mobility limitations, vision loss, or unsteady hands. These adapted kitchen tools and utensils will make food preparation, cooking, and eating easier. They can be purchased from Amazon, supermarkets, and other specialty stores. For example, there are swivel utensils that help a user who has little or no muscle control to keep the food on the fork or the spoon. So the spoon or the utensil swivels with movement to keep a level platform before the food enters the mouth. And here I show a set of swivel utensils, four pieces, cost about $31 from Walmart. There are easy grip utensils. These include larger handles that are easier to grip and the handles may be weighted or non-weighted. The weighted utensils are commonly used by people with Parkinson's disease or other conditions that include tremors to help control unsteady hands while eating. Here I show a set of four utensils for $22 from Amazon. There are angled utensils. The photo here shows a spork, a right angle spork. It's, these angled utensils are lightweight and they're bent for independent feeding. And this one angled fork spork costs about $8. There are also grip straps. These are very similar to easy grip utensils because they help the people who have limited hand movement or they have a weak grip. The grip strap is attached to the fork or spoon and then the strap slides over the hand or the wrist so the person can hold the utensil without squeezing. And here I show a set of several grip holder straps for $12 from Amazon. There are loop utensils, finger loop utensils, which have small loops that slip over the thumb or the pointer finger to help the person hold the utensil, especially if they have little or no grip strength. And in the photo, we have um, a hand holding a finger loop fork um, that cost about $32 from Walmart. There's also something called liftware. Liftware has stabilizing or leveling handles with rechargeable batteries, which last about one hour, which is about three meals. They have dishwasher safe attachments and liftware helps people with hand tremor or limited hand and arm mobility to retain the dignity, confidence, and independence of eating and feeding themselves. Now there's liftware study and liftware level. The starter kit costs almost $200 and the attachments range from 10 to $20. So let's look a little bit more at what are the differences between liftware study and liftware level. Liftware study has a stabilizing handle and then various utensils that attach, such as a spoon, a soup spoon, an everyday spoon, a fork, and a spork. 
Lipware Steady electronically stabilizes so that the attached utensil shakes 70% less than the hand. And this helps people with hand tremor, such as Parkinson's disease or essential tremor, so that they can eat more easily, worry less about spilling the food on their utensil, and focus on enjoying the food in the meal. And in the photo, we see the fork attached to the handle, and the handle is, is clear so that you can see the controls inside. You also see a spoon attached to the handle, a hand holding the liftware steady with a spoon holding some kind of peas. There's a, another photo of the spoon utensil being attached to the handle and then the charger itself. And I'm going to show you a video now. For someone like me with Sorry. intentional tremor, usually when I look at the spoon, I have to pick like, okay, this is something I can eat. Sorry, I'm trying to move my controls so that they don't block the captions, but it keeps, <laughs> it keeps stopping the video. Get it. There we go. Eat. But this is something I should give up. In restaurant, they never had a soup, and it's embarrassing to spill things all over. But I don't need to think like that. Using leftware spoon, I mean, for the first time, I could actually eat soup. Not spilling, and I could carry a conversation. I don't need to focus on like looking at the spoons like this. I'm eating, and I'm actually looking at people carry conversation. So that was really, really good. Yeah. And we also have Liftware Level, which has an electronic motion stabilizing technology that keeps the attached utensils, whether it's a fork, soup spoon, regular spoon, level, regardless of how the person's hand or arm with limited mobility twists, bends, or moves. This limited mobility could be associated with something like cerebral palsy, some type of spinal cord injury, Huntington's disease, or post-stroke deficits. And then in the photo, we see a fork attached to the liftware level handle, and it's clear, so you can see the electronics inside, a spoon attached to the handle, a hand holding the leveling spoon, holding some kind of peas. You can see it's kind of bent and then the spoon being attached to the handle, and then the charger. And I also have a video um, for liftware level. I love the, those videos because they show the satisfaction. You can see it on their faces. So the people, when they're able to feed themselves without spilling the food all over themselves. Um, there are also adapted 
kitchen tools and utensils that are lipped plates. And these are commonly used by individuals who have poor hand coordination. As you can see, the plate edges round up so the user can scoop the food onto the utensil easier. And this two-pack set of plates sells for about $22 on Amazon. A rocker knife, this is a large knife that rocks back and forth to cut instead of sawing food. And the rocker knife can reduce the risk of cutting oneself during food preparation because the knife doesn't need to be picked up between cuts. It costs about $12 on Amazon. Pronged cutting boards can be very helpful. They include little prongs that will hold the food in place while one cuts. They are rather expensive, but they're very useful. This one is about $70 from a rehab store. Non-skib mixing bowls are very helpful for individuals who have shaky hands because the bottom of the bowl is non-skid, so it, the bowl will stay, in put, stay put during preparation tasks such as mixing. And this costs about $33 for a set of three from Amazon. There are spout cups that are used by individuals who have poor mouth control or who spill frequently. Usually these cups have lids and the user sucks rather than drinks liquids. And this photo shows one for $10 that has two handles and then the spout cup with the lid. There are openers that can be manual or automatic to open jars, bottles, or cans. They can consist of grippers, corkscrews, and other mounted openers. But typically, the mounted openers are nailed to a wall or hard surface, and they're especially helpful for people who are only able to use one hand. And the photo shows one for about $30 from Amazon. There are food choppers to cut food without using a knife. This can be very helpful for people who have weak or shaky hands. Show one from Amazon for about $40. Oven pulls are very helpful to safely push or pull hot oven or toaster racks. These pulls are heat resistant silicone so that they can withstand heat up to very high temperatures. Sells for about $10 on Amazon. Manual food processor to safely chop, mince, or puree food of all kinds, about $37 on Amazon. Bump dots are very helpful for tactile marking of everyday items, whether it's computer keyboards, phone keypads, or oven keypads. They're for both blind and sighted people. And you can use clear dots so that you don't obscure the view of keypad displays. For those with low vision, you can use black dots on a white background or vice versa or fluorescent orange dots on a patterned or darker background. And you have a set of a variety of sizes and colors of bump dots for about $20 from Amazon. And then we've probably all heard of the magic bullet. Um, allows you to do many more things than a countertop blender. It's very good for people with limited dexterity, dexterity hand strength, or people who tire easily. And it can be used for quick and easy chopping or mixing or puree or finely blend food, about $40 from Amazon. There is also a book that just came out in May 
by Jules Sherrod, who is an individual who has a variety of disabilities and is in a wheelchair, has trouble with stamina, and I believe is also on the autism spectrum disorder. Title of his book is Crip Up the Kitchen, Tools, Tips, and Recipes for the Disabled Cook. He describes it as a comprehensive guide and recipe collection that brings the economy and satisfaction of home cooking to disabled and neurodivergent cooks. And this uh, book has a lot of recipes and it's they are quite diverse. Um, and so I really, really like that about the book. And Jules says that there are 15 essential items for a disability-friendly kitchen to help solve mobility issues and reduce pain. So here are the first five, an electric pressure cooker, six quart worm you can get for about up to $150, a bread machine for $100 or $150, masala daba, which is a spice and herb storage container. And I show two photos, one in metal and one um, wooden. And then, and they are about $25 to $50. And they allow you to put, have all of your spices together and handy. And yet it keeps them, you know, separate so that they don't blend when they're in the container. You need a decent chef's knife that can be purchased for $40 to $60. And an immersion blender with the attachments that can range from $30 to $140. So those are the first five. The second five are a three-in-one peeler core slicer, which costs about $25 to $35, a good garlic press, $20 to $40, a jar opener, $15 to $20, a counter chair step stool for $100 to $150, and then good grips stainless steel locking tongs, which are about $15 to $20. And... Then the last five on the list, cutting boards with a handle and non-slip feet, $25 to $50. Compression arthritis gloves, $13 to $25. Spice and nut grinder can be purchased for less than $60. A multi-egg slicer, which slices many other things, including uh, strawberries and other soft um, fruits or vegetables. And a pasta roller or French rolling pin. And I believe I got my numbers mixed up there because, yeah, uh, pardon me, that should be 11 to 15. I do know how to count. And now I want to talk about accessible digital technology. Any digital content that's distributed, whether internally or externally, needs to be accessible. Accessible digital technology supports a diverse group of people and it improves experiences for people whether they have disabilities or they don't have disabilities. And a good example here is what are known as curb cuts. Curb cuts um, at the corners of streets so that you can get from the street to the sidewalk basically has a built-in ramp. This is, of course, used needed by people who use wheelchairs or scooters, but it's also useful for people who are pushing strollers, who are pulling luggage behind them, who are pulling or pushing um, a shopping cart on wheels, um, even for people on rollerboards. Um, so curb cuts, this is something that um, 
may not be digital technology, but I'm showing that it is useful for people with as well as without disabilities. Now, here are some resources for accessible digital technology, and it all begins with what's called Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, or WCAG. Um, and these are very, very detailed. And so some other resources you might want to look at are the Job Accommodation Network. Our P and the next one is PEAT, Partnership on Employment and Accessible Technology. There's also EARN, which is the Employer Assistance and Resource Network on Disability Inclusion. There's the Bureau of Internet Accessibility with its Digibility Accessibility Resources. And then there are many companies that um, you can hire to actually help make your website accessible. A couple of examples are Site Improve, and then the bottom one is DeQ. And here are 10 resources to make digital technology accessible. And these are from Pete Works. Um, and I've the links, I, everything that is underlined here is, is the actual link to it. Making documents accessible, making your virtual presentations accessible, planning accessible employee resource group events, accessibility principles for images, and then accessible data visualizations, social media, email, video, web content, and then an overall 10 tips for an accessible website. So I just wanna go through briefly what some of these are um, so that it's a little bit more familiar to you. Um, the American Disabilities Act does apply to web content. To make the websites accessible to all users, irrespective of vision, hearing, ability to use a mouse, color scene, or how one processes information. It's important to remember that inaccessible websites may not only miss job candidates as well as new customers, but it can also expose your company to legal risk. Two, three years ago in February, the Department of Justice had entered into 175 settlement agreements addressing how the ADA applies to digital technology communication and whether or not it's accessible. This has skyrocketed now to almost 4,000 a year. And an example I can give you is um, a grocery store uh, that was taken to court because its website was not accessible to the public. Sorry, I keep losing my little arrow at the bottom. Here's some tips for an accessible website. You need it to be compatible with screen readers when people um, have it automatically reading to them. To do For the screen readers to work, you need to use headers, titles, and lists to navigate. That's not only what you see, but it means you're using the um, coding that actually does this for it so that the screen reader can identify it as a header, a title, or a list to navigate, or even as a page number. You need alternative text to describe the images for people who cannot see the images, but to describe it. You need the keyboard to be accessible so that the web pages and forms can be navigated without a mouse. You might think of a person who cannot use their hands so they 
use a type of headband with uh, what looks like a, a drumstick or a pencil on it. And that's what points and that's how they um, navigate on the keyboard to punch the different buttons. You need controls for moving content to stop or pause things because flashing content can actually cause seizures. You want controls for time content so that someone who needs more time can turn off, adjust, or extend an automatic time limit. You want to use headings instead of instructions that are based solely on location. In the box to the right or in the blue box, that's not helpful for a person with limited vision. And you want to make the content of the page resizable to at least 200% without loss of content or when it actually flows off the page and so you can't see what one side of the page is saying. And some more tips, you wanna label the form fields so they're understandable by screen readers. And so users know the information that's needed. And these form fields can be things for address, telephone number, but it's best to put the instructions or what's supposed to go in the, in the forms, in the fields, above the fields. And you do not wanna put them inside the fields so that they disappear as soon as someone hits a key and starts typing something in that field. You want to color contrast between the text and the background with a ratio of at least three to one. You want accessible, downloadable files. And instead of using PDF, it's actually recommended that your accessible, downloadable files use hypertext markup language or password protected word. And you want to use links that are readable out of context and add underlining or asterisks and avoid things such as click here or read more links that are conveyed solely by changing text color. And you want to include captions on all of your media, captions and transcripts for your media, such as online videos. Now, I mentioned color contrast before between the text and the background. This needs to be at, you need to have adequate contrast here. There are almost three times more people with low vision than those who have total blindness. And one out of 12 people has some sort of color deficiency, color blindness. And here are some examples of what I mean by color contrast. For example, using black font on a yellow background or vice versa, has allows you adequate contrast. But if you use a blue font on an orange background or vice versa, an orange font on a blue background, that does not have adequate color contrast. White font on a purple background or the opposite, purple on a white background, purple font on a white background does provide you adequate contrast. Whereas green font on a red background or red font on a green background does not provide adequate contrast. And color contrast can be used by someone who has low vision if they're typing at their own keyboard. If you're sitting in a large room and watching slides, you need color contrast. And even if you're outside in the bright sunlight. And the best color contrast is black 
against white or the opposite, white against black, that has a ratio of 21 to one. Now there are many tools available online for free that you can use to analyze color contrast. And I give several examples here, WebAIM, DeQ, Juicy Studio, and Color Contrast Check. These are just a few of them. And I wanna mention we have the Disabilities and Nutrition and Dietetics Member Interest Group that just launched in June. Um, the short name is Disabilities MIG. And this is for people, dietetic practitioners who have disabilities themselves, practitioners who work with clients or patients who have disabilities, and anyone else who is interested in the topic of nutrition and dietetics as related to disabilities. And I have several resources here. You want your internships and preceptors to be accessible. And there are several resources I've given you on the slide. I'm gonna go through these quickly because I see we're running short on time and I wanna allow some time for questions. You want your meetings and conferences to be accessible. And there are several there are several resources available to help you with this. And then I am ending with several resources of things that I have done, um, in-person presentations, webinars and virtual conferences, and then different resources. Um, different publications concerning disabilities and nutrition or dietetics. And so let me stop my share now and we can go into the questions. I apologize. Well, I did leave 10 minutes for questions. So yeah, right on time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Susie. Wonderful presentation and loved all the resources that you provided. Um, I know some folks have mentioned in the chat that they're they're eager to access some of those resources. Um, so maybe one of the first questions that we received um, in the Q&A, and for the folks listening in, please continue to um, add in some of your questions. Um, but you, you, Susie, you provided a number of um, adaptive utensils. Do you know if medical insurance covers any expenses for these? That is going to depend on your um, your insurance company and how it is presented to them. I know when I was getting my wheelchair, it it depended on how the doctor wrote the note. You know, in other words, I needed to use the wheelchair um, to get around not only outside of the house, but also inside of the house. Um, so check, check your insurance on that. If it's somebody, say, who has Parkinson's and that's the only way that they can feed themselves, I would hope that the insurance would cover liftware, uh, but you would need to check with your insurance company. Right. So it sounds like us as nutrition educators can probably work with those occupational therapists and those other allied health professionals and be the advocate for patients there to make sure that they do get access to those adaptive utensils. Exactly. And there are many um, in each state, there is usually some type of organization that can help um, purchase or obtain different types of equipment for people who have disabilities um, for, for free of charge. And I know that the Job Accommodation Network has a list of those according to each state, what's available in each state. This also includes um, legal advice 
free legal advice for people with disabilities. So that could help you trying to obtain some of the types of equipment that I mentioned. Excellent. Um, maybe a second question here. Um, so how does one approach group classes where there's a variety of disabilities, especially a mix of maybe mental, intellectual, and physical disabilities? Very, very good question. Um, mental, intellectual, and physical or sensory disabilities, because sensory is um, vision and hearing, um, and phys physical is moving your body. So you want to include the sensory one, sensory disabilities in there too. Um, there you want to, in, in your invitation, when you're inviting the people to come, ask them to tell you what type of accommodations they need, uh, whether they have limited vision or limited hearing or um, limited cognitive ability. That is what's going to tell you how, how you need to adapt your specific presentation. And then it might be through the, the way you provide the handouts, whether they're digital or paper copies. Um, they might need to be um, enlarged, like on legal size paper, you know, instead of letter size paper. Um, and um, an easy reading level for someone who has intellectual disabilities. Um, a lot of people with intellectual disabilities will use the screen readers. So the digital accessibility would be important too. But the first thing, you know, as we know with nutrition education is you want to do a needs assessment and find out what is what is needed with your group. Absolutely. And again, feel free to add your questions to either the Q&A box or the webinar chat. Um, but Susie, may, maybe if from your opinion, um, sometimes we don't know when's the next opportunity where we're going to work with someone that might have a disability. If you can give um, a recommendation to folks living in, listening in on maybe the top thing, that actionable item that they can go to help improve um, their knowledge about how to work with individuals with disabilities, what would you recommend? Wow, that that is an excellent question. Um... I know that um, there is an, a resource on the publications list, an article published a couple of years ago, I believe in the May issue of the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics called, um, that I was the first author on, on people, practitioners with disabilities can enhance idea, but it actually goes through many of the different disabilities and what is required according to ADA if you're an educator or if you're a preceptor, <laughs> um, or if you're doing an internship. Um, and it also gives some different organizations that are for professionals with disabilities. There is a big push in the medical field to have more doctors with disabilities. You know, we, we all have heard of, of IDEA and how people want a practitioner, a healthcare practitioner who looks like them of the same race or gender. Um, I've also heard that said that they want a healthcare practitioner who eats like them. And I really like that one too. And that's where we are talking about, of course, culture. And so there are many different directions you can go with this. I can tell you, um, I'm not seeing very much at all about disability culture being included when the other cultures are talked about. Um, and so that's a need. Um, we actually have a mini grant within the Disabilities MIG where we are going to be self-publishing a book 
with chapters by dietetic practitioners with disabilities. And they are going to share their story of their accommodations that they needed in order to gain their college degree and pass the exam. And then what accommodations they're using in their field. They'll talk a little bit about their culture of disability, you know, specific to whatever their disability is and give some recommendations. So once that book comes out, I think it will be very helpful. But again, it, you know, whenever you meet someone with a disability, it's using that cultural humility to find out from them and actually learn what they need and what helps them best. Absolutely. Well, um, we're coming up at the top of the hour. Susie, I want to thank you again for this really informative presentation um, and for everyone listening in. Um, thank you for coming out on a Monday morning um, and listening in and for also inspiring our division to put on this webinar. Um, we have our chair elect and chair also listening in. So um, if you enjoyed this webinar, please continue to look out for future um, webinars from the Public Health Nutrition Division. And with that, I'll turn things over to Rachel for some housekeeping. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Dr. Baxter, there was a comment that the, the handout, the links were not live um, in the handout. So I promised everyone that I would follow up on that and make sure that we send them um, live links in the handout because you shared so many amazing resources. We <laughs> definitely want to make those available. Uh, just okay. a quick I, I will, excuse me, I will share. I think that means that I need to provide the handout in the full, the full size of the slides. Okay. So each slide is going to be one page. So um, just use the digital version <laughs> rather than trying to print it. Um, perfect, perfect advice. Uh, uh, just a reminder that when I close the webinar, there's a short survey and your feedback is appreciated. And then watch for the email follow-up. Um, should be Wednesday of this week. Um, and we'll get those slides to you with the live links, uh, the recording that we made for our session, as well as the CEU certificate that you earned uh, for your attendance. Um, and as uh, Matthew mentioned, the annual conference is next week. Um, there is an ability, like online in-person registration ends today, but we do have a live streaming option. Um, that's about 20 hours of content, everything that's happening in the main session room. And that content is eligible for CEU. So if you're unable to travel to Washington, D.C. with the, to meet with us, um, there will be a live streaming option that I think you'll enjoy as well. Um, but before next week, there's actually two more webinars um, with SNEB yet this week. Uh, so look on the website. The Healthy Aging Division has a program on Wednesday, and then the Advisory Committee on Public Policy is doing a policy training on Thursday. Um, so very busy time of the year. Look forward to seeing you back again online soon or in person in DC next week.